I want to welcome you and uh, specifically want to just welcome those of you who might be new this morning, newer to West Hills, and thank you for being here to worship with us. Um, you know, even if you're just family visiting for the dedication, the baptism, whatever, we're so glad you're here, and we'd love to uh, have a record of your attendance and be able to thank you for being here and give you a gift if you find that new to West Hills card in your bulletin and uh, want to just fill that out and give us your, your name and email and drop that um, either in the offering box on your way out this morning or directly at the info bar. Um, we'd love to connect with you, and, uh, and again, thank you for being here. A.W. Tozer famously said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What comes into your mind when you think about God? Do you picture this? An old guy with a white beard and somewhat dispassionate look on his face. He's trying to get through to us, but always seems to be just out of arm's reach, a little distant. Art historians would also point out about this famous painting, the resemblance of the curtain in which God is writing here to the human brain. Maybe that fits with how some of you think about God as well. He's just a figment of your imagination. He's not a real personal being in any sense. He's just a concept. Or perhaps you picture this. This is yet another of Michelangelo's famous frescoes on the same ceiling in the Sistine Chapel. By the way, I just Googled images of God and then pulled the most popular hits. I figured that that must tell us something about what comes into our collective mind as a people when we think about God. Maybe for you, he looks angry. He's barking down orders. Again, from some far-off place, mostly displeased with what he observes of us down here, such that even the angels around him are cowering in fear. Or maybe you envision this. He's still old, still distant, hanging out up in the clouds. This time he's kinder, he's gentler. He's like a loving old grandfather watching over us, kind of like a Dumbledore-type figure from the first two movies before Michael... Gambin ruined him in the later films, but whatever you think of when your mind thinks about God, the Bible warns us time and time again that our earthly mental pictures are ultimately doomed to fall woefully short of God. For as high as the heavens are than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord, Isaiah 55. 1 Timothy 6.16, he dwells in unapproachable light. No one has ever seen or can see God because his greatness is unsearchable, Psalm 145.3. How small a whisper do we hear of him? The thunder of his power even, who can understand? Job 26.14. And so at least one of the reasons that we can't fully or even satisfactorily comprehend God is that he is infinite and we are finite. Some theologians use the illustration of an ant trying to make sense of a human, but at least the ant has the advantage of being finite like humans. We're just a little bigger. God is on an entirely different plane of reality, existence. It's orders of magnitude beyond us. That's a really good thing, by the way. It's a really good thing. 
that God is so much greater than us because a God small enough for your mind isn't big enough for your problems. Praise God that he's too big to be understood by little pea brains like you and me. But another reason that we can't get our heads around God is that in all his wisdom, God has chosen not to reveal certain things about himself to us. Deuteronomy 29.29 declares, the secret things of the Lord belong to him. There are some things that we're not meant to understand. But here's the even more shocking revelation from that second half of that very same verse. Moses says, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. There's children again, that we may do all the words of his law. And so many things about God will remain a mystery to us forever. And then there are other things, important things about God that he really has graciously revealed to us because despite his utter incomprehensibility, the fact that the world's greatest minds have pondered God for millennia now and barely scratched the surface. Nevertheless, God tells us in his word, the Bible, that he desires to be known by us and therefore he lovingly reveals himself to us in his word. Last week we kicked off this new fall sermon series, The Essentials, Foundations of the Christian Faith, with arguably the most foundational of them all, the Bible. I argued that accepting by faith that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, ultimately authoritative word of God is perhaps the most foundational, axiomatic belief in the Christian worldview because all of the other beliefs are ultimately derived from it, grounded in it. There's no reason to believe in Jesus without the record that we have of him in the Bible. You might believe in some kind of a God without the Bible, but certainly not the one that we're going to be studying and worshiping together this morning through his word. And almost more mind-blowing than how amazing this God is, is the fact that this God, the magnificent, transcendent, awe-inspiring God of the Bible and all the universe, for some reason, he wants relationship with you and with me, with sinners like us. And so in love, God decided to reveal himself to us so that we could actually know him, not fully, not even close, but we can know him sufficiently enough to trust him and we can know him personally enough to actually love him in return. God reveals himself in his inspired word, the Bible. The Bible is God's autobiography. And now that we have that crucial first foundation in place from last week, that's exactly where we need to turn this morning for reliable information on pillar number two, God himself. So would you stand with me as you're able out of respect for the reading of God's word this morning as we read, I'll read for us Isaiah chapter 40 verses 25 through 31. <clears throat> there are lots of great passages I could have selected to tee up a sermon on God. After all, it's his bi biography. But of all of them, I think this passage from Isaiah best highlights the three main points that I want to make about God this morning. They are once again the three main sub-points in our church statement of faith, 
core doctrine number two, God. And so I'm going to invite you again this week, after I finish reading the scripture for us, I'm going to invite you to respond corporately by reciting together our church's statement of faith in God. Even if you're not a member of West Hills, if you believe in this same God, the God of the Bible, with us, then I would invite you to declare that with us, your faith in him this morning. First, hear the word of the Lord. To whom will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he's strong in power, not one of them is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary. Young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up. With wings like eagles, they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. What is your response to that kind of a God? We believe there is one God, self-existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, is immortal and eternal, knows all things and sovereignly rules over all things and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you indeed alone are worthy to receive all our glory, adoration, our worship and praise this morning and every day. God, we confess once again this morning, that we spend far too much of our lives consumed with thoughts of ourself, our little kingdoms, our little problems. God, we need to be refocused this morning. We need to be recentered this morning. You alone are worthy of all of our time and attention and affection and adoration. Would you shift our focus this morning upward, heavenly? you help us to see you for who you are thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word that we don't have to stumble around down here in the dark and try and reason our way to you but you reveal yourself graciously to us through your word and in your son jesus would you help us to see him this morning to worship him this morning for his glory jesus your glory we pray in your name amen you may be seated. <clears throat> if you had to try and describe God in just one word, which word would you go with? Love? Patient. Holy. Omniscient. Just. Faithful. Sovereign. It's funny. So... First service had all different words. I think love was the only one repeated. And holy, did somebody say holy? 
Good. I think you said holy, didn't you, Scott? No? I'll give you credit. You should have. <laughs> you should have as an elder here. A lot of good candidates. God is great. He's also good. God is just. He's also merciful, transcendent, yet imminent. He's omnipotent, yet loving. The list goes on. But Isaiah starts where the majority of biblical scholars start with the word holy. God is holy. Isaiah says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the holy one. To say that God is holy is to affirm that God is wholly other, with a W, completely other. God is set apart. He's not like us. God is set apart in his perfections. God alone is perfect. He's perfect in all of his attributes. And so a related doctrine then is what we call God's simplicity. In theological terms, to say that God is simple is not to say that he's dim-witted. It's not to say that he's easy to understand, not complex. Rather, God's simplicity here is the opposite of his being composite. God is not comprised of parts. He doesn't possess qualities or characteristics in different degrees like you and me. Rather, God is all of his attributes. He perfectly embodies all of his attributes. For example, you and I exist. You could say we possess existence, not God. God is existence. He's the very ground of all being. Scripture says in him we live and move and have our being. Even God's personal name and his word, Yahweh, means, do you know? I am. I am. I just am. It's the ground of being. Your parents might be loving. They possess love in different degrees. But your heavenly father is love, 1 John 4, 16. God is love. He's the very definition of love. We know what love is by comparing it against God. He's the standard of love. And so God is totally unique. He's different. He's other than us. He's holy. But then Isaiah goes on to list for us in this passage three specific ways in which God is set apart in his perfection from us. And they just so happen to be the same three perfections that our statement of faith lists concerning God. And so I want to exposit both this passage of Isaiah as well as the West Hill statement of faith for you. And we'll conclude with a practical exhortation about how we ought to respond application. How do we apply God's word this morning? If this really is who God is, as he reveals himself in his word, then how ought you and I to respond to that kind of a God, all right? Number one, God is eternal trinity. He's eternal trinity. Isaiah declared, the Lord is the everlasting God. Elohim, we'll come back to that. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He's eternal, we're all mortal. We're all going to die. God is immortal. He can't die. It's not just that he won't die. Remember, God is not just living. He doesn't just possess life. He is life. Capital L, life itself. And so God can't die. Let <clears throat> me go ahead and get this out of the way. Yes, there are some things that even God can't do. No, that doesn't limit his omnipotence because failing to do something that is a logical contradiction, like the classic, can God uh, 
create a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? Or is Luke Worth going to reframe the question in his Ask the Pastor podcast question for me? Can God microwave a burrito so hot that he can't eat it? The answer is no, he can't. But that doesn't compromise God's omnipotence. Neither does the fact that God can't die or God's inability to sin because the only God more powerful than a God who can die and sin and create illogical rocks and burritos is a God who chooses not to, and, and, but chooses not to, is a God who is so perfect, who is so alive, who is so logical that he can't even do those things. All right, but I digress. God is eternal trinity. Eternal trinity. Let's take each of those in turn. First, God is eternal As stated in our church creed, he is self-existing, immortal, and eternal. God is self-existing. Theologians describe God as the only non-contingent or necessary being. His existence in no way depends on anyone else's. I'm here because of Bill and Jill Duvall. They're here because of John and Margaret Duvall, Berkeley and Jane Brandt. And all of us could trace our family Trees rewind the family tape back far enough to Adam and Eve. They got here because of God. And so the next logical question is what? No one here is wondering? Well, where did God come from? And the answer is he didn't. God didn't come from anywhere. He's just here. He's Yahweh. He is. I am. Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end, and even that kind of cheapens it because he was here even before the beginning. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God. He's already there before the beginning, before there's even a universe, before there's even time or space to exist in, God already existed outside of it as the only necessary being. It's the first cause, it's the prime mover. And for eternity future, long after the universe has passed away, God still will be. Psalm 102, the heavens will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment and pass away, but you, O God, are the same. Your your years have no end. God is immortal and eternal. Second, God is Trinity. He's triune. He's three in one. One God, three persons. Now, I'm not really going to spend any amount of time trying to explain it for you because I can't any more than the video attempted to or anyone else can. Although I would, side note, highly recommend as a resource uh, Lutheran satire's video, St. Patrick's Bad Analogies for the Trinity. Very amusing, but anyone who claims to understand the Trinity to be able to explain it for you is a liar. It's not like an egg, the shell and white, yolk. It's not like water, which can exist in three different states, ice, liquid water, and gas. The Trinity is not like anything, because God is not like anything. He's holy. So the Trinity is a paradox. It cannot be understood. It even seems self-contradictory, and yet it points us to a truth about God that is even deeper than human reason. So rather than waste time on the how of the Trinity, I'll just Simply highlight the why instead, namely, why do we believe it and why does it matter? So why we believe God is triune 
Firstly, is because that is how he reveals himself to us in his word. It is clear biblically that there is only one God. I already read the, the most formative foundational passage for you, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. New Testament, 1 Timothy 2, 5, there's only one God. Galatians 3, 20, God is one. But it is equally clear, or at least equally true, biblically, that there that that one God exists as three distinct persons. It's assumed in his very title, for one thing, God. Long before God even revealed his personal name to us, Yahweh, the Bible refers to him as Elohim, which is just the Hebrew word for God. But the fascinating part is that it is the plural form of that noun. 2,598 occurrences of that word, that title for God in Scripture and every single one of them uses the plural Elohim. It's never referred to as the singular Eloah. I've got a personal name, Will. I've got a title, Pastor. Can you imagine if I refer to myself as Pastor's Will? 2,598 times, Pastor's Will. Singular and plural. You would, you would start to worry about me. You think I've got multiple personality disorders, somebody needs to check this guy out. But not with God. God is Yahweh Elohim. He's plural yet singular. And it's obvious from the very first page of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. God says, by the way, he says, who's he talking to? Is he talking to the animals he created on day five? I don't think so. He's talking to himself, right? He says, let us, plural, Make man in our image after our likeness. That's God the Father talking to God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. Trinity, first page of Scripture. And God does it again, Genesis 3.22, chapter 11, verse 7, Isaiah 6.8, all over the New Testament. Elsewhere, the Bible clearly states that Jesus is God. He's not part of God. He's not like God, close, similar to God. He's not ju just in the form of, just a manifestation of God. He is God. John 1, Romans 9, 5, Colossians 2, 9, Hebrews 1, 8, 1 John 5, 20, Jesus is God. And the Holy Spirit, likewise, is God. Acts 5, 3, and 4, 1 Corinthians 3, 16. And so God is both one and he's three. Now, why is that important? If we can't even understand it, why is it so important? Because each of the three persons of the Trinity has his own distinct role to play within God's great unfolding story of redemption. And since we're going to spend one whole upcoming week on God the Son, Jesus, and another on God the Holy Spirit, I would just simply use this as a nice segue back to our focus for today. What is the role then of God the Father? Main point number two, God is powerful creator. God the Father is powerful creator. According to our church creed, God is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. I've already referenced Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We just got done studying our way through the book of Genesis as a church a couple weeks ago. So let me just point us instead this morning to 
just a few of the dozens of other passages throughout Scripture, both Old and New Testament, that highlight our Creator God and His awesome power as Creator. In fact, and I want somebody to fact check me on this this week, uh, because I heard this somewhere in the past once, and I wasn't able to conclusively confirm it in my research, but I have been told that other than God's work of salvation, God reconciling us to himself through the death of his son Jesus and the cross on our place, raising him from the dead to grant us eternal life in Christ. Other than that amazing feat of God the Father, the thing that Scripture praises God for more than anything else, any other accomplishment, achievement, any other attribute of God, is his creation. God is worthy to be praised for being such a powerful creator. Just listen, and I give you the references for these passages. You can feel free to jot them down, go home, read them, study them, glory, revel, marvel in them for yourself, praise God for the glory of his creation, or just take a drive west on Highway 109 this evening at sunset. Better yet, pull off, find a scenic, a scenic uh, stop, look out, pull over, pull out your Bible, Worship God through both his creation and his word. Be doubly blessed for it. Isaiah 40, we read it already. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might, he's strong in power. Not one is missing. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Nehemiah 9. Verses 5 and 6, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name which is exalted above all blessing and praise for you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them and you preserve all of them. We're going to come back to that in just a moment, point number three. You preserve them and the whole host of heaven worships you for it. Isaiah 45, 18 20 through 25. For thus says the Lord God, who created the heavens, who formed the earth and made it. I am the Lord. There is no other. To me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel shall glory. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 104. Bless the Lord. O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. He set the earth on its foundation so that it shall never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. O Lord, how manifold are all your works. In wisdom you've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Praise the Lord. Psalm 139, 13 and 14, for you formed my inward parts too. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are all your works. My soul knows it very well. Romans 1, 19 and 20, what can be known about God is plain to all because his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation 
of the world and the things that have been made. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we all exist. James 1, 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father, his creator. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Revelation 4.11, worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Friends, God is great, and he's greatly to be praised because his creation is great. You, creation, his word, it's great. I've been to the top of the Rocky Mountains just this past summer, looked out over creation. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Do you? I've taken a human anatomy class. You're trying to tell me that we are just happy accidents, like the product of, of random, unguided molecules bumping into each other over millions, billions, trillions. I don't care. You, you can take as long as you want, gazillions of years, even if it's unguided. Like you, you, you can be in charge of those molecules and try and bump them together however you want. You ain't making a human. You can't do that. How bad do you have to want there not to be a God to look up at the stars in the evening sky, to, look, to watch your own child be born and not believe in a creator? No. Romans 1 says, no, we all know deep down we all know there's a God. Biblically speaking, there's no such thing as a, as a true atheist. We all know. The question is, will you worship him? Will you worship him? Friends, he is worthy of your worship. Because not only is he eternal trinity and powerful creator, but number three, God is sovereign sustainer. He is the sovereign sustainer. Our church creed says God knows all things and he sovereignly rules over all things. This is perhaps the most shocking, awe-inspiring truth about God the Father, that the same God who created the universe and all that is in it, from the most distant, undiscovered black hole at the edge of the universe to the tallest mountains down to the most intricate minute, extravagant detail, the complexity of the mantis shrimp's eyeball. That same God cares about the most minute and seemingly insignificant of all details. Jesus said that God notices when a bird falls off a branch. Anywhere in the world, right now, probably thousands of birds falling off of branches. And not only does he notice, he pushed them. He caused it. Jesus said, not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father. He oversees. 
God allows it all to happen, even causes it to happen. Jesus goes on. He says, even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Again, God doesn't just notice. Like, huh, only 34,728 hairs. The average is well over 100,000. Interesting. No. God caused me to to have 34,728 hairs. I can blame him for that. He numbered them before the beginning of time, before the foundation of the earth. He didn't just number them like he's up there counting right now. Like he, he, he had a number and he said, that's how many hairs Will Duvall is going to have. It's his fault. Because God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Having supreme power and authority. Psalm 115.3 declares God does all that he pleases. Job 42.2, no purpose of his can be thwarted. Proverbs 19.21, the purpose of the Lord will stand. Ephesians 1.11, God works all things according to the counsel of his will. He is sovereign. Here's why that is so wonderful. Because as the sovereign king who rules over all of the universe, who has all power and authority to do anything and everything that he wants, who according to scripture, nothing happens outside the counsel of his will. Nothing happens that he didn't give the stamp of approval on. That God, that God he promises us that he's working all things together for our good if we love him and belong to him. He's not just sovereign, he's our sovereign sustainer. He takes care of us, even when we don't see it, even when we don't believe it. Why do you say, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? God must have forgotten about me. I must have Drop the ball, let this bird, this hare, somehow he overlooked. No. Can a woman forget her nursing child? Even a mother may forget her child, yet I will never forget you, says the Lord. Isaiah 49, 15. Isaiah 46, 3 and 4, listen to me, O house of Jacob. You've been born by me from before your birth, before you were born. You're mine. I knew you, created you. I carried you from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he. To the gray hairs, I will sustain you. I have made you, and I will keep you. I will carry you, and I will save you. Isaiah 41, 10. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. Or our passage for this morning, chapter 40. A lot of sovereign sustaining in the book of Isaiah. He gives power to the faint. To him who has no might, he increases strength. Those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Shall run and not be weary. Walk and not faint. Because God himself has promised to sustain you. To the very end. And do you know how he sustains us? Do you know how he does it? You remember the, how the Apostle Paul concluded 
the most famous passage in all of Scripture on God's promise of sovereign sustaining. Romans 8, I already recited it. You have it memorized. God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. But how does Paul conclude that passage? Do you remember? He says, for, because, listen up, I'm going to tell you how God works everything together for your good. It's for those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Translation, God sustains us by choosing us and then changing us to be like Jesus by removing our sin so that we might be adopted as God's own children. That's how he sustains you. Because friends, God does not give up, overlook, ignore, forget his own children. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Glorification means making it to heaven. Paul says, you've already done it. You've already been glorified. Past tense. It's finished. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life with permanent ink. If, if you've trusted in Jesus. And so let me invite you in closing to trust in Jesus. Our response to who God is, last point in your bulletin, is that we should worship. We should worship a God who's eternal, triune, blows our mind, powerful creator, sovereign sustainer. The only right response is worship, our statement of faith. He's worthy to receive all glory and adoration. To worship literally means to assign worth. How do you assign worth? How do you give value to God the Father? I think it's by valuing the things that God values. God says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. God values human life, so we, his people, do too. God values justice, so we do too. God values holiness, purity, righteousness, so we do too. God values his creation, the environment, so we do too, caretakers. But what does God value more than anything else in all of creation? What does he value most? It's his son, Jesus. 2 Peter 1.17, when Jesus had received, all honor and glory from God the Father. The voice said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God values His Son. He bestows upon Him all honor and glory. God loves His Son, my beloved Son, and God delights in His Son with whom I am well pleased. And that makes the greatest mystery of all that this eternal, 
triune, powerful, creator, sovereign, sustaining God of all the universe that he wants relationship with us sinners so bad he loved us so much that he did not withhold his only begotten son Jesus but sent him to die so that sinners like us might be reconciled to God the Father that's the gospel that is the good news of salvation for all who would believe this morning and for that glorious truth we worship God the Father choosing us. We worship Christ the Son for saving us. and We worship God the Holy Spirit for changing us. Praise God for his work of salvation. Amen.